with you. If you're new, my name's Weston, and we're delighted that you're visiting with us on this cold morning. Today we kick off our Christmas series, um, and I know everybody's looking for gifts. One of the gifts that's rising in popularity are these genetic tests. Anybody seen these genetic tests? Te not texts, genetic text tests. Anybody taken a genetic test, 23andMe, Ancestry DNA? Go put your hand up. Yeah, that's great. Okay, I, I saw you on America's Most Wanted. That's great. Awesome. So yeah, they're uh, they're they're in there too. Um, so according to Emergent Research, the global direct-to-consumer genetic testing market in the U.S. You ready for this? 1.4 billion dollars in 2020. So two years ago, they were forecasting by 2028, you would have 4.2 billion dollars flowing in the direct-to-consumer genetic testing market. Now, it sounds great to discover where you're from. <clears throat> read a story, one of many. This gal was planning her uh, trip to Italy. She was 30. She was going to retrace her family's um, you know, heritage, her father's heritage from Italy, and so they got her one of these tests. And what she discovered was that, in fact, there had been a mix-up at the IVF lab, and her dad was, in fact, not her dad. Real bummer for Christmas, you know, real real disappointment type of thing. Um, and yet, despite the fact that, you know, we start to uncover all this genetic stuff, like, wow, like, what are we going to find out? Uh, people are still in droves going to buy them. And the question we might ask is why, but we don't really need to ask it, right? Because we know the answer. We, we have inside of us this innate desire to know who we are, where we come from, who are our people. Like, we want to know this. And it's not a modern-day pursuit. This has been around for a long time. Uh, the ancient Jewish folks, they loved to know who they were and where they came from. This, before genetic testing was invented, they had the genealogy. Now, I know that if you're like me, let's just be real honest, and you've read through Scripture, you get to so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, and so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, or you get to the so-and-so begat so-and-so, depending on what version you read. You know, you get to a couple of those, and you're a little tired of it, right? Because you can't pronounce, you can't pronounce the names, and you don't really care. Like, let's just be real honest. You just don't really care. Three, three deep, and you're kind of like, I don't know these people. You know, it doesn't matter. It's like at the store, like you would buy those picture frames, but you don't know the people inside of them. And, you know, that's, that's where we find ourselves in the middle of these genealogical lists. But Matthew opens his gospel with one. Matthew opens the gospel, and he says, hey, let me tell you who Jesus' people are. And, and Matthew wants us to know. He wants to tell us who everybody is. He wants us to know who is connected to who uh, in Jesus' genealogical list. Um, Jason, I have lost control of my slides, so I'm going to need you to try to help me out here as best you can. Um, nobody will judge you um, if you get it terribly wrong. All right, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1 opens with this list, <clears throat> and here's what it says. It says, uh, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Oh, it's all gone apart now, isn't it? Um, it's going to be mission critical that I have slides towards the middle of this sermon, or I'll have to describe things that will not be funny, um, or we'll have to hand my iPad around, and that will be 
or we'll just make it up as we go, which happens more than I'd care to admit. All right, so Matthew, he breaks this down. If you've got a Bible, you've got the app, um, you know, just read along. You know, listen. Jesus did ministry without the internet. Okay? The church has survived without projectors. We can do it. I have faith in us. All right, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And so, so it begins. Now, Matthew will say, here's 14 generations from here to here, and 14 generations from here to the exile, and 14 generations from the exile to Jesus. And he's going to tell us this all broken down this way. Now, if you are an astute biblical scholar and you've paid attention to the genealogies, you realize that these numbers do not, in fact, add up. And there's a reason for that. Matthew isn't trying to give you the total genealogical record of Jesus. He's trying to give you the summary, hit the highlights. And the number 14 is sort of important. Uh, because the number seven, uh, you know, that's the number of God's completion, right? He creates the world in seven days, and that's that. And so ever since then, we've kind of stuck with this number of seven being the number of completion, being the number of God, uh, and that's there. Um, which is incidentally why the number 666, why is that the number of the devil? It's just, it's just not quite there. It's just one short. It's always missing. It's always lacking. But anyways, number seven is there. And so Matthew's telling us that Jesus has come. And that with Jesus coming, uh, he has come in the sequence of 14s. And it is not just completion, but it is total completion. It's completion double. It's, it's perfection. This is the right time. This is the right moment. This is the right you know, generation for Jesus to show up. And what he's going to do in these three sets of 14 is sort of give us a summary of the Jewish people's heritage, and he's going to give us um, some examples of some people. He, he's going to show us here in this first generation that Jesus comes from generations of believers and skeptics. Jesus comes from generations of believers and skeptics. Now, it begins this genealogy with, with Abraham. Abraham's the father of faith. Now, why do we say that? It's because Abraham hadn't seen God work the way that the rest of the nation of Israel is going to see. Uh, Abraham is called by God at a time when he does not live in the promised land, at a time when it's, it's skeptical, it's iffy, it's sketchy, if best, if his family even follows God. And, and Abraham is, is spoken to by God. And he says, Abraham, hey, I want you to move. I want you to leave your father's family. I want you to leave your father's land. And I want you to go to a new place... That I will show you eventually. And Abraham, being the father of faith, says, all right, I'm going to pack it up, and I'm going to move, and we're going to start over. And that's what he does. And, and Matthew wants us to know that Jesus comes from faith like that. That Jesus is descended of people who believed in God, even when they hadn't seen him work. And, and I think in some ways it's this faith of Abraham that makes the rest of the story so disappointing as people lose their faith. But it shouldn't surprise us, really, because Abraham himself was not a man of perfect faith. I mean, who is? Abraham, he tries to take matters into his own hands when God's promise of sending him a son is a little delayed. Not just a little delayed, like it's decades delayed. Like decades ago, his wife couldn't have children. And so now Abraham's thinking, you know, maybe God needs a little help. Maybe God needs, you know, me to, to intervene. And so he gets this whole mix up and brings in this surrogate and this whole, it's just a mess. And we see in this moment that Abraham is a believer. He's faithful, yes, but he's also got a lot of skepticism. 
that skepticism, that's going to pass down to Jacob, who's going to be this scheming guy uh, that, that works to sort of manipulate his parents and the pieces uh, that are under his control. And we start to look at this and we go, you know what? Jesus comes from all of that. He comes from people that are faithful and these, these devout believers. And he comes from people who are skeptical, who, who just maybe don't quite even believe that God is capable of doing what he said he would do. And I think what Matthew's trying to tell us in all of this is that Jesus comes from people like us, for people like us. Because in this room, I mean, we all have this. I mean, there's very few people that are a total believer and a total skeptic. Most of us have a little bit of both inside of us. And Matthew's saying, listen, whether you fall on the spectrum of, of extreme faith or extreme doubt, Jesus has come for you. The genealogy continues in verse 6, where it says, Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Hang on to that. We'll come back to it. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asa. Now, these names may not mean a lot to you, but they would have meant a lot to the people of the nation of Israel. If you go through American history and you wanted to find some sort of equivalent time period, I think you're looking at the FDR Eisenhower era. This is the, uh, Tom Brokaw said they were the greatest generation, right? These are the people who built, you know, uh, America into what it is. And, and, and the Jewish folks would have looked back at David and Solomon and said, yeah, that was the high point. That was when we had reached, you know, promise and all that we were going to be. And that's when we started to really get it together. And David, you know, he conquers and, and then he writes these Psalms and he's this warrior poet. And then Solomon comes and, and he reigns over this incredible time of prosperity and peace. And this is that, that season where God's promise is kept where the promises of God to the nation of Israel are kept. But you see also in this, there's brokenness and sin and failure. Asa is probably the most wicked king uh, that Judah is going to have. And we've got some real problems here. But, but Matthew is telling us that Jesus comes from generations of promise keepers and promise breakers. That Jesus comes from people who kept their word. David, who is going to be faithful to pursue God with his whole heart. Solomon is going to be somebody who gets so much handed to him and yet gives up on faithfulness to God as he brings in, you know, not just wisdom and wealth to the nation, but so many outside um, women that are going to bring his kingdom into alliance with others, but they also bring in their foreign gods. And Solomon is going to build God's temple, but he's also going to build altars and shrines to foreign gods as well. And you look at these things and you think, my goodness, you know, if you were going to have a genealogy that you would, you know, send God's son to, would it be this one? Because of note is that David's son Solomon is, is who? He's the son of Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. He's, he's the descendant of the woman who... David sees and he says, man, I, bring her to me. And, and we could really call this the rape of Bathsheba as, as he brings her to him and then he has her husband killed to cover this thing up. And yet, who is it that, that Jesus comes from? It is Solomon. It is the son of this marriage. You see, again, inside of all of us, we have promise keepers and we have promise breakers. We have faithfulness and we have fallenness. All of this is here. 
and, and we're people who have experienced the receiving end of both, of people who kept their word and people who broke their word to us. But I think the, the testimony of this generation is that despite the unfaithfulness of the people of God, God remains faithful. You've got Manasseh who shows up in this genealogy, and he's a prime example of people at their worst he is a king who's going to lead the nation of Judah astray. He will even practice child sacrifice of his own children. And yet God is not going to give up on his people. He is not going to give up on us. And that's what Jesus comes from. He comes from people who keep their word, people who break their word. You see, he comes from people like us for people like us. It continues, Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 12. It says, after the exile, Jeconiah was the father of Shaltiel, and Shaltiel the father of Zerubbabel. This is a generation uh, I think we could say is sort of the lost generation. Jeconiah, who's listed first in this collection of generations, is the last of the kings of Judah to reign in freedom. And that he is going to be placed in exile. We just did the series of Daniel. This is going to be the king where all of the nation is exported and exiled into slavery underneath him. Now, what happens there? It's, well, the, the Bible tells the second king state that he did evil in the sight of the Lord as his father had done. That's what happens towards the end of the kings of Judah. They, they descend and they say, God, we don't want you here. And God, we're going to live as though you don't exist. And this is the thing with, with God is that when we live as though we don't want God, God in his kindness and in his grace says, you know what, um, if you don't want me around, I'll leave. But the problem that the people of Judah discovered and we often discover in our life is that when God leaves, that protection, that grace that surrounds us goes as well. And so we see here in this collection of generations that Jesus comes from generations of godly seekers and godless wanderers. That's where we find ourselves. Now, after the exile, there's going to be some men who are going to stand up and help rebuild the nation. Zerubbabel's listed here. He is one who comes and helps to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, who helps to rebuild the temple. But so many of the names that are listed here in this collection of the genealogy, we don't have any clue who they are because it's a generation that's lost, just kind of wandering, seeking, aimless. Who's Jesus? He's descended from this group. He's descended from a group of nobodies, from losers, from unknowns, from seekers and wanderers. Again, Matthew's just telling us that Jesus comes from people like us for people like us. It's amazing where you find Jesus. It's amazing the places where Jesus shows up. I know we've got a few people here from Chicago. Anybody who has moved here from Chicago? Let's just take a poll here. Anybody here in this room? Oh, they're not. Oh, wait, God. Amen. I see that hand. All right, good. Um, it's amazing, you know, different things. I was reading this week, um, stop trying to take control of things. I'm going to take matters into my own hands because I can. Yes, lovely. All right. Now, now we're cooking with gasoline. All right. Yes. So after big snow, don't touch it. Don't, don't so help me. Um, after big snowstorms in Chicago, um, people have to dig out. Now, they actually get 
they get snow up there. I know we talk about getting snow, but they like really get snow. Have you seen pictures of these snow drifts? Like they cover cars entirely and you got a snow plow that comes down the road, just blows snow over cars. And so when you got to get to work or school or wherever, you got to dig your car out. And once you've gone to the trouble of digging out like 10 feet of snow, like you don't want anybody else to park there. So there's this thing called Chicago dibs. And what they do is they put stuff in their spot so you can't park in their spot or you know that it's not your spot. And so here's some interesting dibs. Here we've got Santa and Frosty. Uh, they dug himself out. She dug herself out. And they put two people there to let you know that's my spot, Santa and Frosty. You know, you can't park there. Or this one. They've got a little temporary car they put in. You know, when, that, when my car's gone, that one goes, and you know you can't park there. This one, I, I think I appreciate this because it's got a gift. It says, take a beer, not the spot. Um, and there's some, some beverages there inside of the chair that you could take if you didn't want to take the spot there. Um, this one I like. It's, it's got a whole different angle. Um, you've got uh, Jesus. Like, do not take this spot. Don't take it. Don't touch it. Don't move it because it's... Jesus. Now, some of you are a little bothered by this, but I'll tell you, I feel this man's pain. Here's what you don't know. Maybe you don't. Our church's bus's catalytic converter has been cut out now twice. It's expensive, and it takes like 10 months and three like shops to get it repaired properly. And so I thought to myself, what could we do to not have it like stolen? And I thought like we could hook it up to 220 volts of electricity, and so whenever you get a hold of it, and I... I was afraid, like, we'd kill somebody, and I, I didn't want that on my conscience. And so then I actually thought, we could, like, tape a picture of Jesus, like, up underneath the bus. So that way, as you're getting underneath there with your sawzall and your flashlight, and you, like, Jesus is, like, staring at you. And I thought you could take it one step further and do a little, like, speech bubble out and be like, don't take my catalytic converter. Um, something about that kind of felt right, felt good. Um, didn't do it because I mean if you're crawling under the dark you know you probably don't care um I feel this guy's pain though you know and it's amazing to me that you know there's something inside of the world that we're like man if we put Jesus here it's going to be different it's going to make a difference I think that's the thing is Matthew's telling us that Jesus shows up and he shows up in ways you don't expect for people you don't expect and maybe for reasons you don't expect you see, Christ comes at Christmas as a child of faith for everybody that doubts. I've got something that might blow your mind. The very first Christmas came to non-Christians. Hold on to that for a moment. There weren't Christians when Christmas started. You see, because it's all about Jesus. Jesus comes to those who don't doubt or who don't believe. He comes to the people that doubt. Just like Isaac comes to Abraham, Christ comes to the skeptical. Now, this might be you. You might be somebody in this room who says, you know what, I don't know that I believe. And you might even take it one step further. And you say, I don't, I don't know that I believe. I don't know that I want to believe. But there's something in me that wants to want to believe. And let me tell you, if that's you, God can work with that. I want to want to believe. That's who Jesus has come to, people who've been disappointed, people who have had so many promises to them broken that, that they just don't know if they can trust again. Jesus comes as a fulfillment to the Father's greatest promise. 
you know, any discussion about your identity has to take into account your family. And family, for so many in this room, is a beautiful word. And yet for so many others, it's, it's a word that's filled with pain. It's not a place of affirmation. It's not a place where you feel fulfilled or supported. It's a place of brokenness for you. And let me tell you, God has come. He's come to meet you right where you are, whether you're on the extreme of love your family or you've got just so much woundedness from your family or you're one of those spots that you know, is an infinite line between the two. Jesus has come from people like your family for people like you in your family. Christ comes to the disappointed. He comes as a light of hope for those who wander. And I'll let you have control back of the, the projector now because I know you'll need it later. But Christ comes in these moments. He comes to those who are wandering and to those who are seeking. And, and I know that when people come to church, they come for many reasons. You know, you come because you believe. You come because somebody made you come. You come because somebody said they'd buy you lunch if, if you would come to church with them. Or somebody will go on a date with you if you'll go to church with them. I know it's, it's a hard deal, but here you are. And you find yourself going, man, I, I, I love the story of Jesus. There's something about this that's magnetic, that, that draws me to it. And let me tell you, that's what the season reminds us of, is that there's something about Jesus. I know that the church has gotten it wrong a lot. I know that Christians have gotten it wrong a lot. But the message of Christmas is that Jesus always gets it right, that he's come to make things right. Now, I don't know where you need Jesus to show up in your life, probably in a place a little more important than just a parking spot. You probably need Jesus to show up maybe as this semester comes to an end and, and meet you in a place of great anxiety. Or, or maybe you're saying, man, I need Jesus to show up in my work because, the, man, it's just tough right here. It's tough to be faithful with the people I work with. Or maybe you say, man, I need Jesus to show up in my family or in my marriage. Let me tell you, Jesus has come from people like me and you for people like me and you. He has come to show up in the place where we need him most. And again, maybe you're kind of going, man, I don't know. Maybe he's not much more than a plastic statue to you taking up space. But you think, man, if it was true, that would change my life. And let me tell you, it will. Because Jesus has changed the world. We mark our time based on his birth. I mean, we tell stories. It, just look through the movies and you see these things and they'll tell stories about a Messiah complex. What's that about? That's about Jesus and, and being a Messiah. Friends, our life, our, our, our ethics, our values, I mean, it's been changed forever by this man, Jesus Christ. And as we enter into this Christmas series and as we 